Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. God bless you. Participate in worship with us now by taking your Bibles, opening to John chapter 19. Chapter John, uh, book of John chapter 19. Finishing up the message series entitled H2O. We've been looking through the gospel of John and, and focusing on the way that in the fourth gospel, There is so much emphasis placed upon Jesus as the water of life, Jesus as the giver of living water. Almost anywhere in the Gospel of John, when you drill down, you're going to hit water. And obviously for John to to use that that picture, that, that idea of water, is a very important way that he's trying to teach us what Jesus does for us. He's trying to show us who Jesus is by using the theme of water. And this becomes very, very important in the passage we're going to look at right now in John chapter 19. When Jesus gets to the cross, there are some important things said and shown having to do with water. And these are obviously very, very important to the gospel writer. You're going to notice in verse 35 in a moment, he's going to take a special point to stop and say, I saw this. I saw this. It's an eyewitness account. And it's very, very important to him that you understand what he saw at the cross. We're talking about the cross. We probably don't talk about the cross enough, to be honest, not just in this church, but but anywhere. When Paul preached, he said, you know, I I tried not to know anything among you except Jesus and him crucified. For Paul, it was all about the cross. Truly for us, it's all about the cross. It's embarrassing the way we as Christians have so much to talk about, but so little to say about the cross. I was in a meeting recently in Louisville at the the Kentucky Baptist Convention, and and the topic came up about the fact that some in the Southern Baptist Convention, including the SBC president right now, wants to change the name of the Southern Baptist Convention. And immediately you bring that up in a meeting, and Baptists want to fight about that because we're Baptists. Want to stop and fight about that. What are they going to change it to? You, You know, I don't care. I don't care if they change our name. I really just don't care. Do y'all care that much? I don't care if they call us Kentucky Fried Chicken. They can call us the Black Eyed Peas for all I care. I just don't care what what they call us. It's amazing what we as God's people care about. It's interesting what we get in a lather about when for Paul and in Scripture and in the fourth gospel, honestly, it's the cross. It's the cross. I don't know what else you believe in the Bible. I don't know what else you've read. I don't know what you know a lot about. But you need to know about the cross. You need to know what you believe about the cross. This is what makes us Christian. This is the the, the good news that helps you uh, understand what it means to have life in his name. It's about the cross. It's about Jesus and him crucified. And in this moment, in, in John chapter 19, in this moment on the cross... You're going to see some things, you're going to hear some things, you're going to learn some things that that honestly should change your life. Pay attention to the water. Pay attention to what the eyewitness sees with his own eyes. And ask yourselves what it means to you, what it means for you. Okay? John chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. 
When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. It was a day of preparation and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath and a very special Sabbath because it was the Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks to truth so that you also can believe. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that say not one of his bones will be broken and the scripture that says they will look on the one they pierced. Take your seats. How many of you are twins or have a twin? Anybody in our congregation? Yeah? You have twins? Yeah, twins are amazing. I'm so jealous. I I would love to have a twin. Do we have any identical twins in our congregation? Any any, any identical twins? That means you're exactly, exactly like your brother, exactly like your sister. At Woodburn, we have a lot of fraternal twins, and and that's really, really kind of fun. But not so many identical twins. I would love to have any kind of twin, any, any kind of twin, size, shape, it doesn't really matter. But an identical twin would be amazing. Have you ever thought about that? Would you ever like to have a twin? Honestly, I like to have a twin for one purpose, and you've probably thought about this too. If you had a twin, what would be the best thing to do? Yeah, switch places. Yeah, we've all watched the same Disney movies in in, in our lives. To switch places. I would love to have a twin that looks exactly like me because I'd mess with you then. I'd be messing with you. I'd switch places with my twin. I would let my twin take my place. I think that would absolutely be so much fun just to see if you could pull it off. I don't know if any of you twins have actually ever ever tried it. Lately in the news, there was a story about two twin boys. I think they're 11 years old. They live in Fairbolt, Minnesota, and they were at a hockey game. Their names were Nate and Nick Smith. Did y'all read this story? Did you hear this story? They were at a hockey game, and at the middle of the hockey game, they stopped and did this little thing where they they called out somebody's name from the ticket stubs, and whoever's name they called in the audience, they would come down to the ice and have an opportunity to to hit a puck one time to shoot all the way across the, what's a hockey thing? I'm sorry, I'm not a sports guy. The hockey rink. Is it a rink? Okay, the hockey rink. Could hit it all the way across, all the way across the ice, and they had this little bitty, little bitty hole, the size of the puck. And if you could thread the needle, if you could get that puck right in that hole, you would win fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand dollars. So here's how it went. I believe they called out the name Nate Smith. Nate Smith, come on down. The thing was, Nate had gone to the concession stand. He was 11 years old. Nate had gone to to the concession stand, but his dad and his twin brother, Nick, were sitting in the stands. And when they hear Nate's name called, they realize Nate has an opportunity to win $50,000, but he's at the concession stand. So dad gets an idea. What is it? 
yeah, Nick, you go. So he sent Nick down. They're twins, right? So Nick goes down. He gets the hockey stick, and he stands in front of the puck and just goes, one time. Puck shoots down the ice, straight in the hole. $50,000. $50,000. And nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows that wasn't Nate Smith. And should it really matter? Well, that night, they all got home, Nate, Nick, and Dad, and they decided that honesty's the best policy. So they went back and told them, we're sorry, that that wasn't Nate, that was Nick. And so they took the money back. Yeah, yeah. But the point is they pulled it off. They were twins. He took his place. Nobody knew. If, if they'd never come forward, nobody would know. There were these two high school senior girls named Brittany and Brandy Hildreth. And they had always wanted to switch places and always wondered if they could pull that off at school. Because they had a lot of friends that they were very popular. All the teachers knew and liked them. All the kids knew and liked them. So one of those last days of the senior year, they decided just to swap places and see who would know. What do you think happened? First period, did anybody know? Nobody. Their best friends had no idea. The teachers, nobody knew that, that Brittany and Brandy had switched places. Second period, anybody know? No, nobody knew. Third period, did anybody catch on? No, no, nobody knew. Fourth period, did anybody notice? Yeah. Fourth period, somebody remembered that Brittany's the one that has the tongue ring. Yeah, so, so just note to self, if you're switching places with your twin... Take out your tongue ring. Understand, if you're going to trade places with somebody, you have to be exactly alike. You've got to be enough alike to pull it off. Can you imagine trading places with somebody like that? Can you imagine somebody taking your place? Because this is what you need to understand. This has already happened for you. This has already happened for you. This is the essential part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Th this is what you really need to understand when it comes to Jesus and the cross and everything that we have to say as Christians. Someone has taken your place. Honestly, as a pastor working with children and, and bringing children to faith, which is one of the most amazing and wonderful parts of being a pastor, honestly, it's neat to watch faith develop in, in a young school full of muss. And it's neat to see kids grow and come to understand the gospel and come to understand faith so that they can respond personally and become Christians. It's interesting because kids who grew up in the church, often they, they love Jesus right from the start. And a lot of you grew up right in church and you know this. You sort of just grow up in the lap of the church and, and in the very lap of God. And so you love God and you love Jesus right from the start. And you want to please everybody. And you have this idea that, that, that getting saved, that being a Christian, that, that being baptized is going to please everybody. So, so honestly, the first time kids will say that they want to get saved or they want to be baptized, often they truly don't understand. They just like to please people. And, and they want to make everybody happy. And they understand that, that being a Christian makes everybody happy. There's nothing wrong with that. That's sort of as much as they can understand. 
But then they begin to learn more and more about Jesus, and they will learn what we teach them, how, how Jesus died for our sins. It's a simple thing to, to understand and a simple thing to repeat, but honestly, the, the real meaning of that is very, very difficult to grasp. You can ask a kid the questions. I'm talking about a little one. You can ask them, who is Jesus? And they'll say, Jesus was God's son. And you say, what did Jesus do? Jesus died for my sins. But, but you know what? One of the last things to click into place is that idea of sin. The, the idea of sin. You'll say, who is Jesus? Jesus was the son of God. And what did Jesus do? He died for my sins. And you'll say, and do you sin? And the child will say, no, no, no. See, that, that, that idea that I have sinned, that comes later. And as a pastor, that's sort of what I look for. When a child comes to that recognition that, that I've sinned, when they truly begin to understand that there is something wrong with me and Jesus is the answer to that, that's when a child becomes ready in my mind. When they can fully, or I'd say as fully as they can, grasp that whole idea of personal sin. At that point, I would say a child is probably ready to go ahead and confess Christ and, and so be saved. But that idea of, of substitution, that, that whole concept that, that Jesus died on a cross, but that his death was, was somehow for me, this is a very abstract concept and a very difficult thing for many of us to, to grasp. And even as adults, some of us really haven't, haven't caught on to that idea yet. That when Jesus was on the cross, when Jesus died his death on the cross, that that death affected you. That in the strongest and truest sense of the words, we can say he died for you. He took your place. It's very difficult, honestly, difficult to wrap your brain around that. He took your place. Now, for anybody to take your place, they've got to become exactly like you, right? They've got to almost become your twin. They've got to be enough like you where when they stand in your place, there's a certain kind of exchange, a certain kind of equivalence that, that can be recognized. And this is exactly what God has done for us through Jesus. This is exactly what happens on the cross. Now, now turn in your Bibles back to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I want you to remember some things about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for you. And it starts right here. He's going to take your place. So the first thing that Jesus must do is become like you. He's got to become enough like you so that he can take your place. And this is how that happened. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ had. This is how it starts. You have to think like this. You have to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That though he was, say the word, God. Okay, this is pivotal to our faith. Jesus is God. We say that he's God's son. And sometimes when you talk to little kids, they'll talk about Jesus and God as if they're two very separate beings. But they're not separate. Jesus is God. He is God. When we talk about his being God's son, that's, a, that's a, almost a, a poetic way of describing who Jesus is. Jesus is God. The Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, but the word was God. You understand? Jesus was God. 
So you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, that though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So even though Jesus is God, he doesn't think of being God as something that you got to hold on to. So God does an amazing thing. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a, say the words, human being. Okay? We go from being God to being a human being. How does that happen? It's almost too much for our brains to understand. It's too much to explain with words. But the words that are used here in verse 7, he gave up his divine privileges. What Paul says there is literally he poured out himself. He emptied himself. So here is Jesus who is truly in all ways God. He is, he is in, in all eternity with God and equal to God. He is all of God's glory. Do you understand? All of God's power. Jesus was God, but he emptied himself. He poured himself out as the scripture says. He poured himself out to the point where he could be born a human being. So when Jesus is born on earth, when Jesus was born in the manger in Bethlehem, you know the story. When Jesus came to earth, he's still God, but he's also literally, fully, completely a human being. Jesus is a human being. He's just as human as I am, just as human as you are. There was nothing different about him. Physically, he was a human being. Absolutely human. This is very important in the Gospel of John and very, very important for the Gospel and critical for your life. God became flesh. Jesus became a human being so that he could take your place. He emptied himself. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Do you understand? The entire mission of God in Christ leads to the cross. Back to the Gospel of John. You'll notice that the Scripture says that on the cross, Jesus now knows that his mission is complete. That happens at the cross. It doesn't happen at the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't happen after any miracle. It doesn't happen at any other point in Jesus' ministry until he gets to the cross. It is on the cross where Jesus completes his mission because it is at the cross where Jesus takes your place. You understand? That's where he takes your place. Jesus knew that his mission was now complete, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. In, in the first place, this verse is important because it reminds us that he's human. That he may be God, but he is God in flesh, and on the cross, Jesus was, was, was thirsty, an agonizing Human thirst. If you follow the story of, of how Jesus died, it's, it's, it's devastating and almost too difficult to read. We're told in, in the gospel that 
Jesus in the garden, even before the soldiers had arrested him, even before he was taken and beaten, that Jesus was praying in the garden. You remember that story? But, but, but Luke, Dr. Luke, remember he's a physician. Luke gives us this little detail that even in the garden, he was praying even before the cross. Something amazing was happening to his body. Remember, this is a, an ordinary human body. And Luke tells us that, that in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweat blood. It's a very, very rare human occurrence. It's called hematidrosis, I believe. Remember, Luke's a doctor, so he would notice that and he would include that. Jesus' body was already responding to stress and responding to anguish in a way that, that few human bodies ever would. He, he literally sweat blood. So from the garden, understand, the, the fluid from Jesus' body is, is literally streaming, literally streaming. He sweat blood. After that, of course, we're told that he was arrested, he was taken, and he was beaten. If you saw Mel Gibson's A Pastor of the Christ, then you have some idea. That's not an exaggeration. The beating itself before crucifixion was so brutal that most people didn't survive that. The incredible tearing of the flesh, the incredible loss of blood, the the agonizing, agonizing torture of the beating. Do you understand that the fluids from Jesus' body just continue to stream, continue to stream? At one point, we're told the soldiers take Jesus, already tortured, already so weak that they take him and they blindfold him, and then they just take turns, taking their fists and just punching him in the face, just punching him one after another, punching him as hard as they could. They continued to punch him and mock him and, and aggravate him. The body fluids continue to just stream from his body. We're told that they make a crown of thorns. Understand, these are Roman soldiers. Nobody's an artist in there. In all of the paintings, the crown of thorns looks so beautiful, so carefully woven. It wasn't going to be like that. We're talking about soldiers just trying to make fun of Jesus. They would have grabbed just the gigantic nest of thorns and just drove it into his head. You understand? Just push an amazing tangle of thorns. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't for a picture you understand it was for torture just push the thorns into his head and call it a crown throw a purple rag across his back and call it a robe you understand it's not for a painting it's for torture and the fluids stream from his body did you understand on, on the cross it, it, itself it wasn't really a, a death from blood loss although it's incredibly bloody Typically, that's not how a person on a cross died. Remember that the Romans were experts at crucifixion. This is how they executed nearly anybody they could because it was public, because it was horrible, because people passing by would look at a man hanging on a cross and say, my goodness, I don't ever want to die like that. Whatever he did, I don't want to do it. It was public. It was graphic. It was horrible. And that's why the Romans preferred it. So they made it last as long as possible. A man on a cross could sometimes live for days, and it was an agonizing death. They did nail you to the cross, but they also would typically put a little step, just a tiny step, so that your feet could actually have a place to rest. 
but you're hanging in, in this position. If you've ever had to hold your hands up for long, you know how difficult that becomes. But imagine keeping your arms in this position for hour after hour after hour. What happens is that all of the blood, all of the fluids from your body, they go right into your body cavity, right into your chest. They just collect around your lungs and heart. And so it becomes very, very difficult to breathe. Very difficult to breathe. And that's why they put the step under his feet. Because the only way to get a breath would be to push up. So that you can somehow stretch those arms down and breathe. And then immediately, you drop again. This was death by crucifixion. This agonizing, endless rocking back and forth just to breathe because all of the fluids of your body are now gathered around your heart and lung. And Jesus says, I thirst. I thirst. He was thirsty. Crucifixion was bloody and draining, but it sounds like Jesus was, was more bloody and draining than, than most. And he became thirsty. Don't overlook the fact that that stresses, it stresses the fact that he was human. It, it was a human body dying an agonizing death. But this is the fourth gospel and the fact that this becomes so very important in this telling of how Jesus died means we should probably spend a little more time looking at, at this. Jesus on the cross in the Gospel of John says, what I thirst. Go back with me. Go back to John chapter 4. Let's start with verse 10. John chapter 4, verse 10. I just want to uh, remind you of some things. John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus is talking to the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well, and he says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you what? Living water. I would give you living water. Verse 13, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never thirst again. Never thirst again. Jesus on the cross says, what I thirst. How can it be that the source of living water, how can it be that the one who says, anyone who comes to me will never thirst again? The one who stood up at the Feast of Tabernacles and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. How can it be that that one who is the very water of life, how can we even fathom, how can it even be said that on the cross, that one was thirsty? How is he thirsty? He is the source of water. He is the one who promises if you come to, come to him, you'll never thirst again. How can it be said that he was thirsty? Remember, in the Gospel of John, thirst is physical, but it's also almost always more than physical. Thirst is almost always more than physical in the Gospel of John. So when John says that Jesus was thirsty, he is trying to say something about Jesus' physical body, but he's also saying something more. 
This is a spiritual thirst. Something spiritual is happening here. It's not just that he needs a drink of water, which he does, but there's something much more important, something much more significant, something that you've got to understand about how the fountain of living water can be said to be thirsty. What has happened? How did he become thirsty? How did he become dehydrated? How did the source of water somehow now become absolutely poured out? Two words. For you. For you. Do you understand? He's taken your place. He takes your place. He ought not be thirsty. He's the fountain of living water. But do you know what? The fountain of living water switched places with you. That's your thirst. Do you understand? That's your thirst. The fountain of living water poured himself out. He became thirsty so that you might become satisfied. That's your thirst. That's your thirst. He has traded places with you. I had a meeting one day at the associational office. I was uh, leading the meeting, which also involved that I had to provide lunch. I didn't have to pay for it. Actually, I did, but I didn't have to pay for it. I just got everybody together. I emailed and said, I'm going to go by Mancino's. Let me know what kind of sandwich you like. And everybody came back and ordered a sandwich. And I picked those up and paid for them, and I figured people would pay me back. And that's how it worked. And it was fine, absolutely fine. I got everybody's sandwich. I came in early. I laid out ice and drinks and put the sandwiches in little rows there on the table with the bags of chips. And I was all ready to start the meeting. Thing is, this one guy showed up, and he didn't say he was coming. He's one of those guys that just never responded to the email. You know that guy? Just never responded, never ordered a sandwich, never told me what he wanted. He comes in late. And there was one sandwich left on the table. Guess whose that was? Mine. It was mine. Turkey grinder from Mancino's. Good stuff, turkey grinder. It was mine. I like to go last, let everybody else eat, and then I would go get my sandwich. But see, that's my sandwich sitting there. He didn't have a sandwich. He didn't ask for a sandwich. He didn't order a sandwich. He never said turkey. He never said nothing. Except when he walked in the room and he said, oh, a sandwich. He picked it up. Now, I am a Christian, and outwardly, I don't get really mad, but inwardly, I get mad. And inside, I was so mad. I was so mad. Outside, I was just smiling, not saying anything, and I never said anything. But in my heart, I could have hit him so hard, it would have knocked his name out of the phone book. I would have loved to just hit him so hard because he sat down with my sandwich. I was starving. I picked it up. I paid for it. I took the orders. I did everything to provide that lunch. That clown did nothing but walk in and pick it up. And he sat there and said, this is so good. This is so good. So good. And at the end of the meeting, he left full, and I was still hungry. It was a kind of exchange. Do you understand? It was a kind of exchange. I provided that meal. He came away full, 
I was left hungry. When Jesus on the cross says, I thirst. To understand, he provided water for the whole world. He provided forgiveness for your sins and my sins. That's not his thirst. That's not his cross. That's not his death. He didn't deserve that. That was mine. I deserve that. When he cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Do you understand? He didn't deserve to be forsaken. That's me. That's me. I am the sinner. I'm the one who deserved punishment for sins. I'm the one who deserved to die. Jesus was sinless. Jesus had never done anything to deserve that cross. Jesus was the fountain of living water. How could he be thirsty except that he poured himself out for me? It was an exchange there. He took my place. He took your place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. See this verse. Take out a pen. Underline this verse. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what you need to understand. This is what you need to believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. He died for everyone. His death for us, you understand? He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will say the words, live for Christ. They will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Do you understand? He died for us so that we might live for him. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what it means to be a Christian, to recognize that he died for you, and therefore your life can never be the same. He died for you. Now you live for him. There was an exchange. He's taken your place. Do you understand? He's taken your place. He died for you. Now you live for him. On the cross, he said, I thirst. I thirst. One of the prophecies of the cross says that his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. Like a deer, he panted for thirst. What did they do? Scripture says they, they reached down, they stuck a sponge in a jar of, of cheap wine, vinegar wine. They put it to his lips. In the Gospel of John, do you remember the very, very first miracle? Remember the first sign? What was it? He turned water into wine. And when the master of ceremonies, when the caterer of the wedding tasted the wine, what did he say? This is the finest wine ever. When Jesus provided wine for us, it was the finest wine imaginable. In his thirst, when we provided wine for him, what did we give? 
the cheapest wine possible. But remember, this is the gospel of John. And this is the fountain of living water on this cross. And and this is the one who said, if you come to me, you'll never thirst again. It's that one who says now, I'm thirsty. And so surely you understand by now that his thirst is not just physical. Certainly his mouth was dry. Certainly he needed some sort of quenching. But my hunch is it's not just physical. This is God here, God in the flesh, God whose flesh is now ripped and torn and the fluid stream from his body. Something tells me that there's more to this than just a physical thirst. This is spiritual. This is spiritual. When Jesus on the cross says, I'm thirsty, something tells me that he's thirsty for more than just water, more than just cheap wine. Something tells me that he wants something more. He he wants something more. He's asking for something more than just something to wet his lips. What's he thirsty for? What's he asking for? Jesus said before the cross, he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. What's he thirsty for? Us. Do you understand? His thirst is for us. His thirst is for us. As he stands there, On the cross, hanging, his mouth dry, saying, I I thirst. Do you understand the only thing that he was really asking for was that the people there give him themselves? It's not just that he thirsted in your place, that, that he thirsted for you. He thirsted for you. Do you understand? This is why he came. This is why he died to draw all of us to him. Jesus' thirst was for you. And you understand, today he remains thirsty in that way. In the sense that the deep longing and desire of his heart is to receive something from you. What he wants is your life your heart, yourself. That's why the scripture says that he died for us so that then, having died with him, we can then live with him. He did this for you. He did this for you. He was thirsty for you. So this morning, as you listen for his voice, As he calls out to you from the cross, I'm begging you, give him what he asks for. Give him what he desires. He desires you, yourself. Give him yourself. Pray with me.
Lord Jesus, it was not your cross, that was our cross. Because those were not your sins, those were our sins, which means it was not your thirst, that was our thirst. And yet, oh God, the mystery and wonder of the gospel is that you have poured yourself out for us. You have poured out the the living water, Lord, that we might come to you and drink and, and be forever satisfied. Lord Jesus, you became thirsty that we might be satisfied for all eternity and saved. Lord Jesus, I pray that the ones in this house, the ones in the sound of my voice who've never yet fully understood what it means to say that you died for them. Lord, those who've never really understood that what you're truly thirsty for, what you have come to earth for, what you died for, Lord, was for us, that we might come to you, that we might know you, that we might somehow have our thirsty souls quenched and satisfied, that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be saved. Oh, Lord Jesus, you have done this for us. And now, Lord Jesus, there's only one thing that is left for us to do, only one thing necessarily, only one thing possible that we could give to you that's not already yours, Lord. Only thing we can give you is ourselves, our hearts, our thirsty, thirsty souls. Lord Jesus, I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice this morning will will come face to face with you on the cross. Lord, I have no sermon, I have no words that can capture the importance and power of the cross. Lord Jesus, you speak to hearts. Lord Jesus, you draw people to yourself. Oh Jesus, fountain of living water, let your water flow into our lives. Jesus, you have died for us. Let us now live for you. Let us live for you, only for you. Lord Jesus, your thirst was our thirst, and your thirst was for us. So today, Lord Jesus, let us give you what you're thirsty for. Let us give you what you came for. Let us give you what you want. You want to be with us. You want our lives. Oh, Jesus, let us bring you our lives. We pray these things in your holy, sweet name, but for our own sakes.